Well, hello there. My name is Ransom Kent. I'm the pastor here at Grace Presbyterian Church. Another way to say it, Will, please. You're all right. You okay? Watch the cord there, guys. Uh, another way to say the greeting this morning is welcome to Mr. Ransom's neighborhood. I know some of you are probably testing that to me right now because I don't normally wear a cardigan, but uh, welcome to the culture of our church. Okay. Uh, we're not here to talk about my fashion sense. We're here to talk about the Word of God. So this morning, we're actually, we, so this fall, we were in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. Uh, we finished that up just before Advent. So for the four weeks leading up to Christmas, we found ourselves in Matthew 1 through 3. And so we're picking up where the Sermon on the Mount left off uh, with this new series called The Message and the Power of the Messiah. So we'll be here, uh, Matthew 8 now, all the way through Easter. Uh, at the end, we'll, we'll finish up Matthew at that point. And so, um, again, a new series will begin here in Matthew 8, verses 5 through 13. I'll be reading the passage this morning from the English Standard Version of the Bible. Verse 5 says this, When he had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. But the centurion replied, Lord, I am not worthy to have you come under my roof, but only say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven, while the sons of the kingdom will be thrown into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And, the centurion, and to the centurion Jesus said, Go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let me say a quick prayer for us. Father, thank you for this church. Thank you that we enjoy one another. I pray this morning that we would, uh, in one heart, in unison, allow your word to challenge us, myself included. Allow your word to change us. Allow your word to encourage us. I pray that your glory and your gospel would be on display through the words of this sermon. We pray these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. So uh, the, the story so far, here's what you can know. Jesus is famous. He's famous. Matthew 4, verse 24 says this, So his fame spread throughout all of Syria, and they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, those having seizures and paralytics, and he healed them. Think about this. Before John the Baptist, for 400 years, there had been no words from God. God was silent. Suddenly, you get this character dressed as a nomad, eating the, the diet of a poor person, and he is declaring the kingdom of God is at hand. The one who comes after me is the Messiah. And then we have Jesus. Jesus shows up. He is not only teaching what we would call a hot take on God's law and who God is, he's physically healing people everywhere he goes. This, this recipe caused the fame of Jesus to, to, to increase rapidly. And so wherever Jesus is going, wherever he is, now it waxes and wanes, but a large group of people are following him everywhere he goes. 
Sometimes they're there for food. Sometimes they're there for healing. Sometimes they're there because of what he teaches. But regardless, he is traveling around Israel and a large group of people are following him. And so uh, this, this series, The Message and Power of the Messiah, uh, will be in it through Easter. We're going to be going through the remainder of Matthew. And the remainder of Matthew really is a mixture of stories. It's a mixture of stories about Jesus, the things he does. The, he demonstrates his power. The things he teaches, he, he, he carries along a message, a consistent message. And we'll be looking at those, those things that he does and those things that he says. We can look at uh, the, the rest of Matthew almost like a series of episodes. A series of episodes. Now, we all like a good story. Uh, I was reading an article this week, and one thing that people who write about the Bible love to do is make up words. And um, this person made up a word, theodrama. T-H-E-O, drama, D-R-A-M-A. And what he said that word meant was the story of God. And what he was saying was the gospel is a theodrama, is the theodrama. The gospel is the story of God. And so take that concept of the story of God and think about Matthew. And so as we read these stories, as we go through these episodes, if you will, as we see what Jesus does and what he says, we're not just going to be gathering information. It's not just about doctrine. It's about experiencing who God is through the gospel. It's about knowing who God is and, and understanding that where does the theodrama play out even today? In the church, we as Christ's disciples right now are called to act out the story of God in our time. And so these aren't just stories that are great to listen to. These aren't just stories that we can learn from. These are stories that we can experience and then live out and live out. And so today's sermon, the, 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 we're going to be looking at the power of the Messiah, specifically the power of the gospel. We're going to be looking at the power that it had then, and then recognizing that same exact power that it had then as Jesus spoke with the centurion is the exact same power it has now. We're called to live it out. So let's jump in. Let's set the scene. Look at verses 5 through 7. When Jesus had entered Capernaum, a centurion came forward to him, appealing to him, Lord, my servant is lying paralyzed at home, suffering terribly. And he said to him, I will come and heal him. So Jesus, and again, remember this large crowd of Jews, they're, they're walking through Capernaum, and this uh, foreboding character, a centurion, approaches him. Now, we, we, in our culture, we see centurions in movies and things like that. This is significant. This is significant. What is a centurion? A centurion is a leader in the emperor's uh, army of Rome over about 100 soldiers. So like centimeter, centurion. He, it's equivalent to maybe a captain in our day and age. So a fairly powerful person in the, the army of Rome. Um, and uh, he's 100% Gentile. He's not a Jew. That's important. We'll see how in a moment. In addition to that, think about who, what Rome is to Israelites. Rome is the occupying army in their country. It's not like they are protectors. They are there. They have taken over the country, and they are the, the enemy, in a sense. So when we see a centurion approach Jesus, a Jewish rabbi, this is a big deal. This is a big deal. And so Jesus, notice how he says, uh, my, my servant is lying paralyzed at home. He doesn't ask Jesus to do anything. And if you look at the account in Luke, he says, my beloved servant. 
and he gives more detail there. We get the idea that the centurion is a, probably a tender, caring type of person, and the, the language that's used here is this is a beloved, young servant boy of his. So one of his servants has fallen ill, he loves him, he wants to do something for him, and he hears about this healer, Jesus, and so he goes to Jesus for healing. Uh, as a side note, when Jesus says in verse 7, I will come and heal him, uh, almost all the, the folks I read today who were speaking of the original language, it's, it's better to read as a question. There's no punctuation in Greek. And so here, really what Jesus is saying is, what would you like me to do? What would you like me to do? So the centurion, again, this enemy of Israel, this Gentile, comes to Jesus, the Messiah, and says, my, my beloved servant is sick. And Jesus says, okay, what should we do next? In this passage... Uh, I think we all know the ending. What happens? The boy is healed. That's, that's kind of the, the upfront face of this, of this passage. That's the power that we would expect to talk about. But if you're familiar with screenwriting or, or uh, writing of books, you've heard of a MacGuffin. A MacGuffin, the technical term, is an object or device in a movie or book that serves merely as a trigger for the plot. We've seen MacGuffins our whole lives. It's an action movie, and they're after this thing, and, they're, and they're, they're, the, the thing is what they're always after, but by the end of the movie, it does, the thing doesn't even matter. It's about all the things that happen in between. Now, the healing does matter. The healing happened. The healing is true, but Matthew uses healing in three consecutive stories to point at some deeper truths of the gospel, deeper powers of the gospel. And so this morning, yes, the end, the power of the Messiah was in the healing of the boy, but but. Matthew, as a good storyteller, uses the healing to teach us these other levels of power that we can observe. And so that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, these other facets of the power of the gospel. Let's jump right in. The power of the gospel, the first power that we can observe is the power of the gospel overcomes, overcomes. There's several kind of things we can see here that the, the, the power of the gospel overcomes. First, in the passage, it overcomes political disagreement. The power of the gospel overcomes political disagreement. I wrote this before Wednesday, okay, just so you know. Um, this is an officer in the occupying army of Israel. This is important. We miss this because we're so used to these characters in our culture. This is an officer in the occupying army of Israel. What should have been the expected result of this conversation? Revolt. On Jesus' part. Who are you? Why, why would you talk to me? I'm a, I'm a Jew. You're a, you're a Roman. You, you lord over me. Instead of asking, are you nuts? Or even spitting in his face, what does Jesus do? He engages as if this person is a fellow human being. That's what he does. He says, what would you like me to do? There's no vitriol. There's no disagreement. He engages the centurion as another created being. As a human. So we see very briefly... He, he interacts with the centurion, and he, said, he doesn't reject him. He accepts him. The gospel has the power to overcome political disagreement. Verse 8, if we look at that, we can see that the, the gospel has the power to overcome man-made divisions. Look at verse 8 with me. So Jesus asked the question, should I come and heal him? What would you like me to do? The centurion replies in an interesting way. He says, Lord, that's important, <clears throat> I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. You see, the centurion is a smart cookie. He's a smart cookie. He knows what he's talking about. He's keenly aware of this division that exists between Gentiles and Jews in this culture. For a Jewish rabbi to come 
to the house of a Gentile would have sullied his reputation with other Jews. And so in addition to that, he refers to him as Lord. Kyrios is the underlying word there. It's not as important as the fact that this is the same word used to refer to God in the Old Testament. And so the centurion understands, first of all, who Jesus is. He understands the difficulty of a Jewish teacher healer coming into his house, and he is trying to be polite. He's saying, listen, we don't have to go through all that. Don't come to my house. We shouldn't do that. Some examples of this. Acts 10, Peter, one of the apostles of Christ, he still held to this idea that even interacting with Gentiles would make you unclean. And uh, the Lord deals with him in this really striking way. First, he reveals to Peter in this vision, he lowers down this sheet of what I assume was bacon and lobsters, okay? And, and he says, look, look, you can't eat these things now, but I'm telling you, they're clean. They're now clean to you. And then he goes on to tell Peter, and you know what? People that you consider unclean, they are clean to you as well. And then Cornelius, who's a Gentile, uh, Peter goes to meet him because he's told to by the Lord. And here's the interaction they have. And Peter said to him, you yourselves know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with or visit anyone other of, of another nation. But here's this beautiful realization that Peter has had. But God has shown me that I should not call any person common or unclean. This is Peter repenting of something that's wrong, something man-made. You see, there's another uh, scenario in Matthew 15. I find that Matthew 15 actually has a lot of connections to this passage, and we'll get there eventually. Uh, there's this particular passage in Matthew 15 where Jesus' disciples are eating with their hands, and they didn't wash their hands. Obviously, COVID wasn't around back then, okay? They were eating without washing their hands, and, and the Pharisees came and very harshly said, listen to the exact wording here, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Break the tradition of the elders. So, was interacting with Gentiles, was interacting with uh, unwashed hands a law of God? No, these were uh, formalities set up by man to make themselves, again, that measurable piety, to make themselves look good. Oh, to have this, this easily obeyable uh, tradition. Now, Jesus, in this case, burns them pretty hard. They had apparently been donating all their money to the church or the, to the temple, and their parents were destitute. And he says, uh, that's not right. Why do you do that? And then he makes this statement. It's not what goes in the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Why do I bring this up? Jesus, in his ministry... As he lives out the gospel, as he is the story of God, what does he do? He is always willing to violate man-made boundaries in order to fulfill the heart of God's law. Jesus is always willing to violate man-made boundaries, the rules that we set up in order to fulfill the heart of God's law. And what was the heart of God's law for this centurion that Jesus would interact with him? that Jesus would heal his servant. The power of the gospel overcomes racial and cultural differences. Verses 10 through 12 highlight this for us. Verse 10 says, uh, when Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, truly I tell you, with no one in Israel have I found such faith. I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. This is radical. This is a radical teaching. 
what had been the assumption before Jesus that simply by being Jewish by blood was what you had to do in order to deserve the kingdom. Hence, you get this idea of uh, this really scary verse, verse 12. uh, The sons of the kingdom will be thrown out into outer darkness. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. The sons of the kingdom there, that's a a phrase that Jews used to refer to themselves back then, meaning we're sons, literal sons. Since we've been born Jewish, we're in. We don't have to do anything for that. Because of our genetics, because of our heredity, God wants us. And here what Jesus is saying is that it's something different. And in fact, these, the, the, the demarcation between Gentile and Jew does not matter. Many will come from East and West. Jesus interacts with Gentiles very, in a very limited manner in the Gospels. Another one, again, Matthew 15, he, he takes his disciples out into Gentile country, Tyre and Sidon, and this lady comes up and says, my daughter is afflicted with a demon. Um, and and uh, there's all this interesting dialogue where the, the disciples are like, get her out of here, her scram, right? And, and Jesus has this very interesting conversation with her. Now, for 21st century folks, it can sound problematic, but listen. <clears throat> so this lady is asking for her daughter to be healed of this ailment. <clears throat> and he, sa- he says, he answered her, I was sent only to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. But she came and knelt before him saying, Lord, help me. And this is where we're like, oh my goodness, Jesus. He says, it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. And you're like, my goodness, what is he doing? He's doing the same thing here that he did with the centurion when he said, what should I do for you? What should I do for you? Should we go to your house? What Jesus is doing here and what he's doing there, and these two stories help explain one another, is he's asking a question to test the Gentiles' faith. In a sense, what he's saying to both this woman and to the centurion is, how do you view these racial divisions that have been created by man? I'm going to make a statement to you about what Israelites think about you, and I want to hear your response. And what's her response? Give me the crumbs, whatever it takes. And you know what he does? He heals her daughter. He says to the centurion, should we go to your house? He said, listen, don't even come to my house. Say it from a distance. And he says, your your servant is healed. The gospel is this powerful antidote to racism and culturism. If you you want to read more about this, uh, there's a sermon I did many months ago on Ephesians 2, 11 and following. There, Paul is describing just how the gospel dismantles racial division. In the gospel, there is one people. If you want a book on this, Bloodlines by John Piper is a fantastic book. But listen, do you hear the powerful triumph over racism that's in verse 11? Many will come from east and west. Luke adds north and south. And what will they do? They'll recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is like the ultimate sweet reward for the Jews. We're going to eat with and recline with and be with our forefathers. And Jesus is saying it's for everybody, including the centurion. R.T. France says this, the centurion story has thus highlighted faith as the one needful thing. It's a practical faith which expects and receives results. Such, such faith renders tradition and heredity meaningless. That is good news for us. 
tradition and heredity. It doesn't mean you have to do certain things or be a certain person to be in the kingdom. The kingdom is for everybody because the kingdom can be accessed through faith. The last uh, overcoming power of the gospel, it overcame physical distance. Verse 13, and the centurion, uh, to the centurion, Jesus said, go, let it be done for you as you have believed. And the servant was healed at that very moment. Jesus didn't need to travel there. He needed to be there and physically touch the person. His word simply was said, and his word was powerful enough that over whatever distance it was, the servant in that very moment was healed of his ailment. That is a great transition uh, to the next point, and it's good that that's there because that's how I wrote it. Um, the, the power of the word of Jesus, the centurion understands the power of the word of Jesus and if you look at the, the centurion's understanding of the power and the authority of Jesus, it's simple. And so I want to say this for our next point. The power of the gospel is simple. It's simple. Look, at me at verse, look with me at verses 8 and 9. I know we're jumping around here, but uh, just pulling the, the, the points as we use them. So again, the centurion replied, Lord, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. We've already talked about that. Here's what he says, but only say the word. Only say the word, and my servant will be healed. And then he gives an explanation as if Jesus needed it. For I too am a man under authority with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And another, come, and he comes unto my servant. Do this, and he does it. Do you see the simplicity? The centurion says, only say the word. Just say the word. You don't need to come. We don't need to do this big hurrah of you coming to my house. Just say it and it'll be done. And he gives the explanation. I too am a man under authority. And, and here's what we need to understand. The centurion nails it. Okay? He nails it. The centurion understands the power of Jesus. And so you can see he, he uses this example. When he gives an order to his troops, even from a distance, they obey it. Why? Why does, a, why does a Roman soldier obey the centurion? Because the centurion doesn't speak on his own account. You don't do it because the centurion says so. You do it because the centurion speaks on behalf of the emperor. The, the, the centurion is not giving his own orders. He's giving orders for someone who has more authority than him. And that's what he means when he says, I too am a man under authority. And when I say jump, or when I say go, or when I say fight, or when I say any of these things, they do it. Why? Because in a sense, the centurion is the emperor incarnate. He's the emperor there with them, giving those orders. And so, the centurion's understanding, man, we should envy it. We should envy the centurion's understanding of the power of Jesus Christ. He understands there's no elaborate hoops to jump through. There, there's, there, there's, there's only power in his word because of who he is. The centurion trusts in Jesus not as a matter of emotion or convincing. He trusts in the power of Jesus' word as a matter of fact. As a matter of fact. In fact, if, if, you could, if you could pry into his brain, what you will see is that he understands the authority structure of the Trinity. The centurion understands the Trinity. It's kind of hard to believe this is, this is when Jesus was just on earth, but he understands that because God the Father is God, 
And because God the Son, Jesus is here, His authority is the authority of God. And when Jesus speaks, it's as if God the Father is speaking. God incarnate. Like the emperor incarnate. He understands and he states it simply. Because of who you are, Jesus, because you are God in the flesh, because of where you came from, because of how the Trinity is set up, because of all these things, just simply say the word and it will be done. This isn't manipulative. This isn't, he's not trying to coerce. He's just saying, I know. We should be comforted by this faith and it should be incredible to us. We should want this, but we're not the only ones astonished by it. Look at Jesus. This actually has nothing to do with the power of the gospel. It's just great to mention, great to look at. Look at verse 10. When Jesus heard this, he marveled and said to those who followed him, I tell you the truth. This is a great moment where we can see the humanity of Christ. John Calvin puts it this way. Um, Though amazement is not appropriate for God, think about this, why shouldn't God be amazed? He knows everything. And he says, seeing it must arise from new and unexpected happenings, yet it could occur in Christ inasmuch as he had taken on our human emotions along with our flesh. And there's only two times that it says about Jesus, he marveled. It's here and another time at the lack of faith from the Pharisees. Jesus is like, my goodness, it's much worse than I ever thought. And so here, the confidence of the centurion in his simple understanding of Christ's power, it's marvelous to Jesus. It's marvelous to him. It ought to be marvelous to us as well. The third power revealed in this passage, the power of the gospel is inclusive. It's inclusive. We've, we've touched on it a couple times. Let's dig right in. Verse 11, I tell you, many will come from east and west and recline at the table with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. There's two stories that bookend this particular story, and every single one of them show the inclusivity of the gospel. The story just before this, Jesus encounters a leper. A leper. This is a highly contagious disease of the skin. And, and look at what Jesus does. The leper approaches him and he says, heal me. And in Matthew 8.3, Jesus stretched out his hand. This is incredible. He stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately his leprosy was cleansed. Listen, the only, I'm so glad, well, this is going to sound messed up. I'm so glad we're in a pandemic. But listen, this is a great way for us to understand. This is like in an, op, in a, in an effort to heal someone with COVID, kissing them on the lips. I would not recommend that. It won't work. Jesus was the antidote to leprosy. But it's the same thing. People, he touches the leper. They're thinking, what are you doing? Unclean. But Jesus, despite the physical condition that had ostracized this person from society, Jesus says, you're healed. You're with me. Here we have the centurion. His race kept him from being a part of Jewish society. And Jesus says, what would you like me to do? I'm with you. And then the, the story after this, Peter's mother-in-law, which might seem to us as kind of this innocuous story, but what was the role of women in this society? They were, they were pushed out. They could not have a full experience in this society. And, and so what does Jesus do? He heals Peter's mother-in-law. And so whether it's a physical condition or, or the race or their gender that keeps them out, Jesus says, you're in with me. You're with me. Gospel power overcomes those things. 
I'm guessing that was you, Will. I don't know. That's, it's just going to go ahead and do that. And then you have this troubling verse 12. And here's really what this means. While the sons of the kingdom will be, will be thrown into outer darkness, that place will, and there, that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Listen, some will refuse this inclusivity. Some will refuse it. The key here is that you cannot reject Christ and have the kingdom. That's what he's getting at here. You cannot say no thank you to Jesus Christ, which is what the Pharisees and the Sadducees at that time were doing. No thank you. And have the kingdom at the same time. You can't have your cake and eat it too. And so what he's saying is anyone who wants to be saved by me will be saved. Anyone who wants to save themselves on their own merit, you can't. And you won't. And you'll find yourself in a place that's not too pleasant. Anyone who wants to be saved by their own merit will be offended by this idea. Oh, so I have to believe in Jesus? Yes. He's the rescuer. There's one more truth that I'd like to relate to you this morning. And that is the fact that the power of the gospel is the same today. The power of the gospel is the same today. Church, back to this idea of the theodrama, we're called to continue the ministry of Jesus Christ. That's our call. And so the same things, the, the story of God we observe here is to be acted out here in this church, in this community, by us, disciples of Jesus Christ. The work that Christ began continues through us right now, today. And so if you're going to write something down and bring it home, here's where it is. The power of the gospel still overcomes. It's still simple, and it's still inclusive. It's still all those things. It still overcomes. It's still simple, and it's still inclusive. Let me run quickly through some points on that. The gospel still overcomes political disagreement. Listen, if Jesus and acting in accordance with the story of God in the Gospel can overcome the differences between a centurion and a Jew, he can overcome the differences we find in our two-and-a-half-party system. It's possible through the Gospel. Political agreement is not a prerequisite to be in the kingdom. It's not. The Gospel undoes those things. The Gospel overcomes man-made divisions. Listen, I do this all the time. What rules do we enforce on others? And they're just simply my rules. But I act like they're God's rules. And, and another way, what rules do we obey that are counter to the gospel? I'm not talking about the speed limit, right? Well, if I can drive faster, I can get the gospel to people quicker. No. Talking about rules like this, it's impolite to talk about religion. Says who? Says who? Nobody. Well, Southerners, maybe, okay? But, but talking about religion and talking about Christ is what we're called to do. And what if we are not doing it because we might be impolite? This is a man-made division. The Gospel still overcomes racial and cultural differences. How important is this for today? You know what the biggest and best answer, the only answer for the racial issues in our world today? It's the Gospel. That's it. I know that sounds, you're right, you're oversimplifying. No, I'm not. The answer to these problems, the answer to that division is, is to love as our Lord loved. And look at people like our Lord looked at people as human beings created in the image of God. If we love as Jesus loved and we engage as Jesus engaged, we 
can become radically cross-cultural. Why? Because we, we, we peddle in a, something that, that overcomes these, these barriers that the world can't seem to overcome. The gospel. This is appropriate for right now. The gospel still overcomes physical distance. It still overcomes physical distance. Now, are there benefits to being together and physical touch? Yes, but that's a different sermon. This sermon, I want you to hear this. Those of you who are at home, even those who are here in the sanctuary, as we call it now, um, the, if you encounter the word of God, guess what you have encountered? The power of the gospel. It's not like the, the internet is a filter that keeps the power out. When you encounter the word of God, even from a distance, it has power. Wherever the word of Christ goes, the power of the gospel goes. Folks, the gospel is still simple. Jesus is still in charge. That's it. Jesus is still God the Son. He still works under the authority of God the Father. And guess what? Jesus still means what he says and says what he means. And when he says those things, there, there's power in those things. We as Westerners, we overcomplicate this. We overcomplicate. Jesus' word has power. Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus is Lord. Jesus is the Savior. This last one, church, if you're a member of grace, this should melt your heart. Listen, the gospel is still inclusive. It's still inclusive. East, west, north, south. No matter your background, your gender, your race, your socioeconomic status, no matter your political party, whether you're single, married, divorced, it's complicated, whatever you are, whether you're a USC fan, Clemson, Ohio State, or even Alabama, it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. There is a spot at the table for you. Ransom, how could that be? Anybody? Anybody? Listen, our Messiah, Jesus Christ, the anointed one from God, came, and what did he do? Under the authority of the, of the Father, he executed his orders perfectly. You know what he did? He lived this perfect life. And in doing so, he earned the righteousness, the favor of God. It was predetermined before time, but he did that. And what he does then at the end of his life is he dies a sinner's death. For you and for me, we deserved that. We didn't do that first part. We didn't do the perfect living part. We still don't. And what did Jesus do? He gave himself for us, paying the wrath of God in our place. And then, what is the resurrection? Jesus Christ comes back from the dead. The resurrection is an invitation to everybody that needs rescue. Everybody that needs rescue. It has nothing to do with what they've done or who they are or they come from or, or anything like that. No, it has to do with the fact, do you need rescue? Well, yes, I do. Jesus. And so let's make it simple this morning. Like the centurion. How is our spot filled at the table? It's filled by faith. It's filled by faith. Believe that Jesus Christ did those things for you. Believe that Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone is the way to God, is the way to salvation. And guess what? He'll marvel at that. And he'll, he'll make a spot for you at the table. Let's pray. Lord, I admit... that at times my words feel like nonsense, but Father, I know the fact is 
The power of your spirit is what wields these words. And so I pray this morning that these words, in hindsight, would, would be effective. That we'd see our role in the theodrama of God. Our role in living out the story of God even now in this place in Northeast Columbia. We're not here to store up goods. We're not here for any other reason other than to be called into your family and to live out the gospel. And so this morning, I pray for myself. I pray for a simple, factual belief that your gospel has power. The power to overcome all the things that we think in our minds. How could we possibly get through this as a nation, as a, as a world, as a human, as a family? As an individual, the gospel overcomes those things. When we try to overcomplicate our lives in Jesus Christ, remind us the power of the gospel is simple. And Father, I pray that this place, this church, our families, our homes would be a place where the inclusivity of the gospel is lived out. That many would come to know You. People that look different, that act different, that are different. Not because they're different, but because everybody needs Jesus. And so may we be a place where those who need rescue come and find it. I pray all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen.